welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 388, The Stupid Before the Storm. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Nicholas, Clara, and Keith for signing up already. We left off in the court of King Harold Hadrada. And you probably feel like you know a lot about this man by now. There's the stories about the Empress, and his time as a Varangian, and his reputation as a seductive warrior poet. And all of the, oh my god, this guy is really hot stories, really were circulating around him. Like, enough that if you're going to cast Harold Hadrada for your 1066 movie, you probably want to cast him with Jason Momoa. But the thing is, that Harold was a person, and he had a lot more going on than simply being really ridiculously good-looking. And while the stories about Harold's sex appeal are hilariously awesome, which is why I bring them up so often, the fact was that Harold had many more sides to him. And for Harold, the other aspects of his life were, well, kind of scary. This is a man who had become a legend because he'd spent his life going a Viking. He was a true Viking king with all that it entailed. And these people were not cute. They weren't heroes. They were pirates, thieves, and killers. And if Harold was alive today, he probably would be called a warlord. Furthermore, Hadrada was not his last name. It was a descriptor. Hard ruler is one translation for it. Tyrant is another. And his own skalds, the poets of his court, proudly sang of how Harold the Tyrant lived a life that was drenched in blood. They boasted about the bodies he left in his wake and describe him as an unmatched killer and slaver. Quote, Harold, you harried all Zealand. The wolf hurried there to find the fallen. The prince threatened the foe. The folk-strong king went to Finn and gave the helmets hard work to bear. The shields burst asunder. Grimly, the fire burned in the farms south of Roskilde. The warrior king made the fallen houses glow. The countrymen lay fallen. Hell, the goddess of death, robbed them of freedom. The housefolk, bent with anguish, fled hastily to the woods. Sorrowfully, they left their homes, and the Danes who lived thereafter fled away. The fair women were seized. The lock held the maiden's body. You sent before you many unwilling women to the ships. The fair-skinned bore the chains. End quote. That's a translation of a poem by King Harald Hadrada's skald, Valgard. And there's more. There's also a poem attributed to another of his skalds, Throfer Anarson. Quote, The gray eagle's keen claws, O king, you died in blood. The wolf was always fed before you went homeward. End quote. And this wasn't how his enemies were speaking of him. This is how Harold's own people spoke about him. It was how he instructed his personal poets to write about him. Because while it is true that King Harold Hadrada was a poet and was apparently sexy, he was also a Varangian, 
and a ruthless killer who came from a culture that was as alien to many of his contemporary neighbors as it is to us today. And at this point in his life, he was also a ruthless killer who had just spent about a decade and a half at war against Denmark. And frustratingly, the Danes remained free. Harold had failed. Making matters worse, Norway had been relatively at peace for the last two years. And for a culture that produced large numbers of violent pirate fleets, this was a problem. For those fleets, their primary source of income was raiding and war. Harold, as king, was supposed to provide for these warriors. Going a Viking and going to war was their path to riches and advancement. And Harold had been failing them in this regard. Two years of peace was a dangerous thing for a Norse king. And for a king like Harold, it was honestly unthinkable. Harold had spent pretty much his entire life embroiled in one conflict or another. He was a wartime leader. But suddenly, he was a wartime leader without a war. And honestly, the only military action Harold had seen during the last couple years was when his own subjects had raised a rebellion against him. And unless something changed, that wouldn't be the last revolt. So Harold was now a man who faced a tenuous position at home. He was a monarch who was feeling insecure on his throne and becoming increasingly paranoid of betrayal and growing desperate for the chance to show his strength. And he didn't seem to hide from this reality. In one of Harold's own poems, he said, quote, Now I have caused the deaths of 13 of my enemies. I kill without compunction and remember all my killings. Treason must be scotched by fair means or foul before it overwhelms me. Oak trees grow from acorns. End quote. This was Harold Hadrada the king. This is how he spoke of himself and how he wanted others to see him. He didn't just kill on the battlefield. He also killed enemies at home, personally and he had no patience for deceit or intrigue. And it was this man that Tostig was pinning all of his hopes on. Tostig, a guy who was driven out of England due to his many intrigues and how he often used deceit to kill his own rivals. Not exactly a natural ally for King Harald Hadrada, but Tostig was desperate. He'd gone to every noble that he had any tie to to beg for support, and each of them had turned him down. Some of them seemed to even take pity on the guy and try and get him to abandon this feud for his own sake. But that was something that Tostig was unwilling to do. And if this ruthless king was his chance at revenge, then he would take it. Now, I should mention that we aren't actually sure where these two men met nor when. As I mentioned before, the timeline of Tostig's travels and even some of his locations aren't well recorded, and the records that we do have are often contradictory. As such, it's left to historians to reverse engineer it by looking at the written record, travel times, wind patterns, and the like, and then they just have to kind of make a best guess. So, for example, we have Snorri Sturluson claiming that Tostig had gone to Norway in the spring, and then went back to Flanders to collect some men. Meanwhile, you have the Chronicle that claims that Tostig met with Harold after his failed campaign into York, and that they met in Scotland. 
Then complicating matters, you have John of Worcester, who claims that Tostig had an earlier agreement with King Harold, which would raise the possibility that a Norse invasion into England had been in the work for quite some time, and that there may have been multiple meetings. The records really are all over the place, so we can't know precisely when these two men met for the first time, or even where, because no one can agree on it. But the reason why I'm putting it here, at this point in the tale, is because this version of the itinerary is very plausible. It would have been a tight schedule, but Tostig could have hit all the destinations where his presence is mentioned, and still landed in Norway to speak with King Harold in about June. Now, when Tostig left King Malcolm of Scotland's court, the easiest way to get to Scandinavia would have been via a stopover at Orkney. Because in Orkney, there would have been ships that regularly made the crossing to Norway. And we do have a later record that mentions Tostig's Northumbrian ally, Kopsig, going to Orkney to recruit some troops for Tostig's war. So if he did take this route, that could account for Kopsig's presence. And it might also help explain why pretty much nothing would calm Tostig down by this point in his life. Not even an offer of a Danish jarldom. Because if Tostig already had vassals collecting another foreign army for him in Orkney, he wasn't about to just drop the whole thing. If Tostig really had gone this far, it wasn't something he could have stopped even if he wanted to. Those men in Orkney would have been expecting to get paid. And so that's why I'm sharing this version of Tostig's itinerary. Because this version does seem to be the most plausible, and it hits all the points that actually mention his presence. But I want to be very clear that given the nature of the records, we can't know for certain when he first met King Harold Hadrada. And it's even possible that Worcester is right, and the two men met twice or possibly even more times. And that Snorri in the Chronicle may have been recording two separate meetings first in Scotland and later in Norway. We really can't know for certain. But I suspect that probably in early June, Tostig and King Harald Hadrada met in Norway, much like Snorri tells us. Because Snorri does seem to have a clearer view of what happened there than most. And in fact, his account of the meeting between Harald and Tostig is stocked with spicy details. We're told that when Tostig met with King Harold, he was in peak Tostig form. He approached the mighty king and boasted about how far he traveled and how much he had done. Tostig bragged about how he'd met with kings and dukes and how his travels had taken him as far south as, well, Normandy, which was pretty much just a short boat trip across the channel from his family lands. But he had gone as far north as, well here in Norway. But to be fair to Tostig, that probably was a mark of pride for him. He really had been putting it all out there, and for an average English nobleman, he'd really traveled all over the place. But Tostig wasn't talking to Thane Athelbrad of Warwick. He was talking to King Harald Hadrada of Norway, a man who was famed as a Varangian guard, a Vikinger, a warrior poet, and a legendary adventurer. So bragging about taking a trip that Norse wool traders did countless numbers of times a year wasn't exactly the sort of thing that would impress a guy who, among other things, had lived in Constantinople back when he was a captain for the f***ing Byzantine Empire. So you have to imagine that there were some incredulous looks and awkward shuffling as this English exile bragged about his minor commute. But... 
Tostig being Tostig, he just kept going. And he informed the king that he hadn't just come here to relate his epic journey. No, the real reason Tostig was here was that he wanted the king to go to war with England and get him his lands back. And as this fearsome Viking king stared at him, I can imagine Tostig wondering if something was lost in translation. I mean, did he not hear about how he'd sailed for several days across the North Sea to meet with him? Come on! But eventually, the king replied, and he said his Northmen had no interest in campaigning in England. The English already had a king, and his people had no desire to acquire lands that answered to English lords. And then he added darkly, people say that the English are not to be trusted. And considering that Harold's poetry spoke about how he'd slain those among him who were untrustworthy, well, the implied threat in that statement must have been plain for all in court to see. But I'm not sure if Tostig heard the threat. Or maybe he just didn't care. I mean, this exiled Earl was fearless and probably crazy. So rather than quietly taking the L and retreating back to his family in Flanders, he doubled down. Basically, he told Harold, if you won't go to England to acquire my titles for me, that's fine, I guess. But it is pretty weird that you aren't going there to get your own titles. After all, you're the successor and kinsman to King Magnus of Norway. And everyone knows that Magnus and Harthacanute had a deal where they'd inherit each other's lands. And because Harthacanute died first, that meant that England and Denmark were his by right. Magnus even sent messengers to King Edward telling him that. Those lands were his, which means now they're yours. And you're not even going to go take them? And the king replied that if Magnus had a claim to England, then why didn't he take it? And Tostig's response was basically, I don't know, Harry. Why don't you have Denmark? I'm not kidding. That was basically his response. Tostig was taunting King Harold f***ing Hadrada for losing his war against Denmark. To his face! A war, I should add, that had lasted for over a decade and was fought against Tostig's own extended family. And it was a loss that was likely one of the main reasons why Harold was now dealing with revolts back at home. Tostig might not be a Varangian. He might not have been a great adventurer or warrior. But he clearly was bold. And if he wasn't bold, then he was definitely bug nuts. And Hadrada's response was terse. And I'm actually going to give you the direct quote here because even in the awkward translation from the saga, you can hear how pissed he gets. Quote, The Danes have nothing to brag over us Northmen. For many a place we have laid in ashes to thy relations. End quote. He was telling Tostig he knew exactly who his kin group was and that he'd already buried a bunch of them. It was an ominous and not very subtle threat. Which... Tostig completely ignored, saying essentially, fine, if you won't tell me why you don't have Denmark, when even your nephew Magnus did, then I'll tell you. Magnus had the support of the people. That's why he won in Denmark. It's also why you lost. They didn't want you. And this absolute madman continues saying essentially, but look, the reason why Magnus didn't take England was because England supported Edward. 
Magnus would have lost, just like you lost in Denmark. But things in England are different now, and I can get the most powerful nobles in England to support you. Because the only difference between my brother and me is that I lack the title of king. If you joined me, you'd have the support of the people. And frankly, I find it pretty surprising that a supposed warrior king like yourself, who knows what is his to take and is so focused on taking what is his that he would fight a losing battle with Denmark for 15 years, would just refuse to take on England when it's just sitting there? I bet you could hear a pin drop in that hall. I'm also betting that a few of you listening right now are shocked to hear that Tostig claimed he was basically a king in all but name, and that he was beloved by the English people. And when we look elsewhere in the saga, we get hints that Tostig likely spun quite the story about the situation in England. Because when the saga discusses Tostig and his family, it says that Tostig was a general who commanded the army of England, and that it was Tostig who was King Edward's chief counsel and that he was placed above all other nobles, and it was he who commanded the loyalty of the kingdom. We're also told that Harold Godwinson, by contrast, was merely Tostig's younger brother, and a trifling courtly hanger-on who worked to stay close to King Edward, but really was nothing more than a treasurer. So if Snorri is an accurate depiction of what the Norse believed at this point, that means they were under the impression that Tostig was the older brother, a gifted general, and the leader of the Witan, whereas Harold was merely the nerdy younger brother who tried to use his presence in court and his position as a treasurer to curry favor with King Edward. Love it. And the tall tale in the saga goes on. When we're told about King Edward's famous bequest of England to Harold Godwinson, we're told that actually, Harold leaned over Edward as he lay dying, and then just stands up out of nowhere and says that Edward named him king. And then he commanded the rest of the people in the room to stand as witness to that statement, which, it seems, no one else actually heard. Afterwards, Harold was quickly consecrated and proclaimed king, and when Tostig approached his brother and told him that actually it should be his crown by right, the brothers argued bitterly, Harold refused to step down from the throne, and then he dared Tostig to stop him and basically took the position of, what are you going to do? I'm rich, bitch. Furthermore, apparently Tostig, all he wanted was for the Witan to choose the best man to lead England. And Harold refused. And because Tostig was so smart, such a great warrior, and had so many powerful friends in England... Harold took the command of the army away from Tostig, took his lands away, and had him exiled. You know, because he was so afraid of him. So, there's a bit of discrepancy between what the Norse saga says and what the English sources tell us. And if Snorri's recounting is an accurate portrayal of the Norse perspectives, that means there's a good chance the Norse believed that Harold Godwinson was the greedy younger brother of the much more impressive and beloved military leader, Tostig Godwinson who had been disinherited and exiled through deceit and dishonor. And I wonder who might have given them this impression. So my guess is that as Tostig was calling out the king for being a bit of a coward if he refused to invade England, he was also laying out why his brother was unfit to rule and why the people of England would rally to Tostig when called because they absolutely loved him. And, you know, 
You and I know this was all utter bullshit. Tostig was so hated in England that every time he landed on shore, he was treated like a pirate. And as for his claim that he was the chief man of the English army, well, we know that was actually his brother. And the one time that Tostig led an army entirely on his own was in the Humber. And he did such a terrible job of it that he was forced to flee on a fishing boat. But while we know that Tostig was full of it, King Harald Hedrada didn't. And after the failure in Denmark, he really needed a win. And he really did want some titles and lands to add to his name. And he really did have a lot of warriors in his mitts who had way too much time on their hands. And things tended to get a bit backstabby when that went on too long. So King Harold agreed. He would invade England. Based on a tontine that his nephew, Magnus, had with King Harthacnut about three decades ago. It was a tangled and far-fetched claim, and it was ridiculous even by feudal standards. And you can see the contemporary English sources basically go, what the f**k, when the Norse take an interest in the crown. So my guess is that if this claim was actually valid, and if this really was a long-term interest of the Norse crown, they had done an extraordinary job of keeping it secret for literally decades. And personally, I suspect that it's much more likely that Hadrada didn't have any serious English ambitions until Tostig convinced him that it would be an easy and lucrative campaign in a time when Hadrada really needed an easy and lucrative campaign. But now, with the king convinced, Tostig became his man. And the two of them met regularly, planning for the invasion that was intended to take place in late summer. And as they drew their plans, messengers were sent all throughout Norway. Harold ordered that fully half of all fighting-age men must answer as muster and prepare for the conquest of England. Now, the responses to this muster were varied. Some jumped at the chance, as King Harold Hadrada's exploits were already legendary, and they believed he was exactly the kind of king who could successfully conquer England. Others, however, were concerned. England was a dangerous undertaking. It was a land that had proven to be difficult to take and hold in the past. And there were concerns over how dangerous the English thanes were, with many believing that their bravery was such that one of these thanes was equal to two of the best warriors in Norway. So the reactions to the levy were mixed. But the army was gathering. And honestly, Hadrada's work of gathering an army was much easier than William's. There were plenty of Norse warriors who were champing at the bit for a fight. And truth be told, voyages across the sea for plunder and riches were much more culturally acceptable and normal for the Norse than they were for the French. And Harold didn't have to deal with nearly the level of infighting and baronial intrigue that William did. Going across the sea for an invasion was a terrifying prospect for many of the French which is why William needed to bribe so many of his fighters with future riches. And even then, he also needed the Pope to lend his weight behind the whole endeavor. Because all of this was just deeply out of their comfort zone, even for William's most experienced knights. But for Harold Hadrada's people, well, this was just another day at the office. And unlike the French, 
Many of them were experienced sailors, and some of them even had their own ships. And unlike the French, they weren't bringing horses, which meant they could use their local ships, which could sail under any wind. I mean, if the winds were against them, they could just row across the North Sea as the Norse had done countless numbers of times. And so Harold Hedrada, unlike William, really didn't need to concern himself all that much with the weather. And he could assemble an invasion fleet that would be ready to launch far more quickly and easily than William. And so that's what he did. And in no time at all, his fleet verged on being battle-ready. So Hadrada appointed his son, also named Magnus, as the regent of Norway, who would serve while he was on campaign. And wanting to cover all of his bases, he also took a trip to visit the shrine of the saintly king Olaf in Trondheim. Once there, he opened up the tomb and found that, although Olaf had been dead for about three and a half decades, his hair and nails were still growing. Now, this was believed to be a sign of saintliness. But if that is the case, it means that there's a lot more saints than we think, because generally, when skin decays, it shrinks, and it makes it look like the hair's growing and the nails are growing. But really, what's happening is the skin's just pulling back. But this also means that when your time comes up, you should arrange for your loved ones to do a coffin check a few months later and then send the results into the Pope. You might get your own candle. But Harold Hadrada didn't know about the effects of decay. And so he, like many of his contemporaries, took it as a sign from God. And not wanting to leave Olaf looking all scruffy, he then gave the saintly king a trim and a manicure before relocking the shrine and throwing the key into the river. Which, if you think about it, is a bit rude, honestly. I mean, what if the saint wanted to shave and a trim in the future? Now he's all just locked up. But whatever. With a few choice corpse clippings, Hadrada set about making his final preparations for war. Meanwhile, in England, King Harold Godwinson had his fleet, along with perhaps as much as half of the Ferd, stationed at the Isle of Wight. And the rest of the Ferd was spread along the southern coastline of England. William and the Normans were coming. They had to be. I mean, Bill had threatened him repeatedly and even got the Pope to say some really mean things about the English. Then he assembled an army and even constructed a fleet. This was definitely happening. He was sure of it. The Normans would be here any day now. Any day now. Where the f*** were they? This was getting ridiculous. He'd had this bird stationed along the coast for weeks now. And so far, all they had to show for it were some new suntans and some happy seagulls who now had plenty of chips to steal. And keep in mind that the Ferdsmen were farmers who had been conscripted, which meant that the farms of Wessex at this point were severely understaffed thanks to this Coast Guard. Crops, livestock, pregnant partners, Children, elderly family members, there were all kinds of responsibilities that the men of the Ferd had waiting for them back at home. And the longer that this went on, the more dangerous the effects of that neglect could be. Winter was only around the corner. But here they were, sitting on the coast, scaring away the seagulls. And back on White, it was no better. 
All these ships and men were just sitting around doing nothing. And feeding that many men wasn't exactly a simple thing. It was expensive. Furthermore, just the presence of the ships was expensive. Every day that they were stationed at White was a day that they weren't out there handling the lucrative taxable trading routes. So this whole thing was just costing them a fortune. It was also boring. And the longer it went on, the worse it was getting. But they just had to hold on a little longer because the window for campaigning was rapidly drawing to a close. No one deliberately campaigned in winter, especially when it involved naval crossings. And that meant that they just needed to keep the coast safe until the weather turned. After that, invasion would be nearly impossible. But by this point, the assembled forces were getting restless. They'd been called up for about two months by this point, and they probably hadn't seen their families nor heard any news about them for that entire time. That's a long time to be away, a long time to worry about their well-being, a long time to let the doubts and fears about the upcoming harvest to fester. And it probably also didn't help that the weather seemed to be turning early. The wind had been blowing south, it was exactly in the wrong direction from what the Normans would need for their crossing. So it likely seemed pretty clear that this just wasn't going to happen. And while King Harold Godwinson knew that the winds could still change and that they could still bring the Normans across the channel, his forces were probably getting increasingly frustrated as they watched the southern coastline with wary, and in many cases weary, eyes, only to see nothing. I imagine it seemed quite clear to many in the army that the winds were at their backs in more ways than one. And perhaps these Normans were all talk. Meanwhile, to the north, the winds were at King Harold Hadrada's back as well. His fleet was ready, and this breeze would make his southern crossing relatively quick and easy. And so on or about August 12th, Hadrada launched his fleet, and he headed to the nearby Shetland Islands. Now, this was just one leg of their journey, but even that part was about twice as far as what William and his army would need to sail. However, these were Norsemen. They were seafarers, and they knew these waters. And so the crossing to the Shetlands was pretty much routine. Though Snorri does add that sailing being sailing, some of the fleet failed to find the Shetlands on their crossing. Perhaps they were blown off course or lost track of the fleet in the night. But no worries, they were still Norsemen, and they simply continued on to Orkney. And as for Hadrada and his fleet, well, after that brief stopover at the Shetlands, he too continued on to Orkney. And his arrival was probably an enormous event for the people of Orkney. The King of Norway, along with his queen, his daughters, and this mighty host, had chosen to visit this oft-neglected earldom. And there's a good chance that as Hadrada set about gathering more warriors for his conquest, he was also feasted by the elated sons of Earl Thorfinn of Orkney. You might remember Thorfinn from the Macbeth episodes, because Thorfinn the Mighty reigned for a very long time. But it's thought that he died sometime around here, though we don't have precise dates for that. We're just told that he died towards the end of Hadrada's reign. So chances are, 
he was probably dead at this point, or really close to it. But either way, the arrival of Hadrada would have been a momentous occasion, and I suspect that more than a little mead was spilled in celebration. And while I'm sure Hadrada didn't need an excuse to party, this was also a savvy political move, because he wasn't just here to merely rest up. Hadrada was here to recruit even more warriors into his army. And so that's what he set about doing. Meanwhile, back in England, these Normans were going to appear on the horizon any day now. Any day now. 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 This was getting silly. And the Chronicle tells us that provisions in the army were running low, which I think is likely true. Feeding this many men for this long would have been logistically difficult, not to mention expensive. Making matters worse was the fact that the vast, vast majority of these men weren't professional soldiers. They were Ferdsmen, and that meant that they had a limited term of service. A term of service that was almost certainly on the verge of expiring. At which point, they will have done their duty and were allowed to return home by right. So the clock was ticking. And while it is possible that Harold Godwinson may have been able to convince some of them to stay longer, the fact was he was a new king who had been elevated in a controversial way and who came from a family that was controversial in its own right. Furthermore, asking the Ferd to stay longer would have looked a bit like madness. The wind was clearly on their side, blowing against the shores of Normandy. And the fact of the matter was that now, in late August to September, the time for seafaring was pretty much done. Voyages across the sea, especially ones involving fleets of this size, were a summer thing, not a fall and winter thing. In fall, ships would be pulled onto shore to wait for the coming spring. What you don't do is stuff them full of horses wearing life vests and push it out into the channel. So with the equinox being less than a week away, most people probably figured this wasn't happening. The wind had protected them, and now it was time to go home and try to pull their lives back together before it was time for harvest. And so on September 8th, knowing that their provisions had run out and their duty had been paid, the Ferd disbanded and returned home. And the Chronicle tells us that there was nothing Harold could do about it, saying, quote, no man could keep them there any longer, end quote. And so Harold, for his part, gathered his fleet and returned to London. It, at last, was done. And as they marched back home, the winds began to change direction. Now, do you remember how I mentioned that Harold was accused of having spies in Normandy? And how William certainly would have had spies in England? And also, how individual vessels could easily cross the channel without perfect wind conditions in a way that an invasion fleet wouldn't be able to? And thus, individual ships could easily cross between southern England and Normandy pretty much at will? Well... Within days of Harold's army disbanding, there was a flurry of activity in Normandy. After a month of doing nothing without any explanation, a month of having to hold rallies to keep Sir Ralph from abandoning the cause, a month of having the leadership doing anything they could to keep Sir Stefan from roughing up the locals and trampling the fields for funsies, suddenly the wait was over. It was time to move, like right now. 
and on September 12th of 1066, just four days after Harold's Coast Guard was disbanded, William and his generals were scrambling to load his knights, horses, archers, and everyone else onto these rickety ships and cast them off to float down the River Diva. You should see me in a crowd. And while it is true that they did have favorable winds, those winds shifted back and forth during this time of the year. So this was unlikely to have been the first time that they had favorable winds. And let's be honest, the timing here is too perfect. So I think that William probably knew that there was more than simply the wind that was against him in the previous month. And I think he probably knew that now all of that had flipped. So he had to move fast before that opportunity was lost. So the Norman ships and barges floated down the River Diva, stuffed with knights and assorted soldiers who were probably feeling a bit out of their element, and also stuffed with horses who were definitely feeling out of their element. But it wasn't long before the Norman fleet reached the channel with winds at their backs, and at their front was an undefended coastline. It was on. All they needed to do now was cross the channel. But if the wind changed even a little bit, they could face catastrophe. This fleet was too big, and the boats too heavily laden, and the crews were just too inexperienced. So any regular sea breeze in the wrong direction would be enough to scuttle the whole thing. And Poitiers tells us that's exactly what happened. The winds shifted, and they started blowing in from the west. And while experienced sailors, like the kind that crewed Hadrada's fleet, would have been able to tack and hold until the wind shifted back, that wasn't who William had crewing his fleet. Tacking through hard winds, while your ship is also sitting really low in the water due to all the horses, was just well beyond their abilities. And so, even William's hype man, Poitiers, had to admit that this invasion had gone completely off the rails. The ships were getting blown all over the place. And instead of making the voyage towards the Isle of Wight, they were being pushed east. And they were helpless against the winds that were battering against them. Some of the ships were pushed out to sea. Others were slammed into the shore and wrecked. Some, I'm sure, were swamped or capsized. Ships were lost. Men were lost. Horses, I'm sure, were lost. And, likely through luck more than through skill, William and what remained of his fleet found their way to a familiar location. It was a harbor on the Somme estuary, a town called St. Valerie. And there he was forced to gather what remained of his fleet. But the winds were picking up, and now it started to rain. The sea which had already defeated them once before, was now getting even rougher. And it was clear to everyone at this point that summer had to have been over. And with its end came the end of the campaigning season. And what did they have to show for it? Lost ships, drowned knights, drowned horses. The luckiest among them probably just had some injuries. And for many, their fears had now been fully realized. Project Seahorse was exactly as insane as it had sounded. The Pope had made a mistake. This couldn't be done. God had just made that very clear. And so Poitiers tells us of the, quote, craven flight of many who broke faith, end quote. 
William's army was disintegrating before his eyes. And in an effort to stop the bleeding, Poitiers tells us that William hid their losses. The people who had died, he had them secretly buried. The lost supplies? Well, he hid that reality by actually increasing their rations as if they had a surplus. And as for God, we had a solution for that as well. Entombed nearby was the 7th century Frankish monk, St. Valery. Now, Valery was a saint whose main miracle involved keeping insects away from his veggies. And while the patron saint of Monsanto wasn't exactly a perfect match for Project Seahorse, the fact was, beggars can't be choosers. And so William ordered that the corpse of St. Valery be fetched out of his tomb and be brought in front of the church so that God would change the winds for them. Yeah, according to Poitiers, Bill thought that the best way to make friends with Big J and to get him to change the winds was to raid the tomb of a saint and trot the corpse out like a mascot for the Super Bowl. And Poitiers, bless him, did the best he could to spin this, describing it as, quote, an act of Christian humility, end quote, because nothing says humble like using a saintly corpse as a prop. But anyway... That's the story of how a random change in the wind led to St. Valerie getting to go for a walk about 400 years after his death. Thanks for listening. 